All right, let's, uh, let's get in God's Word. If anyone would like to get baptized today who didn't plan on getting baptized, but you just feel a tug of, of, of God's Spirit saying today is a day where you want to um, unite your life with Jesus Christ, maybe for the first time, or maybe it's just something you need to do because you've drifted and, and, and gone a long ways from Him and you'd like to still use this symbolism, um, find Brad Claver in the back. Brad uh, will be back there, or go to the Connection Center. Um, the likelihood that we're going to do it today is probably minimal, but we will do it next week. We have several baptisms already for next week. So, All right, well, happy Resurrection Day, everybody. Uh, we have made it to Luke 24, kind of figuring out where I get to pace up here. Okay, good. I have some spots. <laughs> Okay, let's, uh, if you have a Bible like mine, this is found on page 749, Luke 24, beginning at verse 13. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. Thank you, please. (laughs) And they were talking with, with each other about everything that had happened, and as they talked and discussed These things with each other. Jesus himself came up and walked among, along with them. But they were kept from recognizing him. Jesus asked them, what are you talking about as you walk along? They just stopped. Their faces downcast. One of them named Cleopas asked him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem? that doesn't know what happened? Well, what things, Jesus asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, he replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. Yet our chief priests, our leaders, handed them over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all of this took place. And on top of this, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning. They didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Some of our companions went to the tomb and found it, just as the women had said, but they did not see. Jesus said to them, How foolish you are. How slow of heart to believe. All that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And then beginning with Torah, the books of Moses, and the rest of the Old Testament, he explained to them what is said in God's word concerning himself. And as they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus acted as if he were going to continue on. So they urged him strongly, stay with us. It is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So Jesus went to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, blessed it, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were open and they recognized him. And he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, Were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened God's word to us? This 
This is God's word. Be seated. So this really is the high point of the biblical story. I think it's fair to say that this is the truth of all truth, the hope of all hopes. It is the event that makes sense of all of history, our world. It makes sense of the Bible. And at a very personal level, it makes sense of our lives. Which is why Paul said, I want to know the power of the resurrection. In fact, that word know in, in both Greek and Hebrew, in Hebrew it's the word yada. To, to, to know, to yada something is more than just to know about it. it it's this, I want to know it by having a personal experience, a personal encounter of it, and therefore know it that way. And that's what I hope for everyone today. Now, uh, Luke is writing as a historian, and he ends chapter 3 and then starts chapter 24 by just basically giving us the facts to to show us that, yep, Jesus really did die. And, and, And yes, his body really was buried. It was credibly buried. And, and yes, Jesus really did rise from the dead. He, he, he's laying it out in such a way to say this really happened. Now, if you want to know more on this, I would just recommend that you uh, find this scholar, N.T. Wright. N.T. Wright is not only a great uh, theologian, but he is a phenomenal historian. And he brings all of these things together, and, and especially understanding the background of that day, to explain why the resurrection is something that we can have full confidence in that it really happened. So if you need help in that, I just suggest you Google N.T. Wright resurrection and you'll, you'll have some phenomenal resources. That's not what I'm going to do today. I want to look at what the resurrection actually means. And I, be, I believe that this is one of the, the all-time most beautiful stories in the Bible, the one that we just read. Jesus is uh, joining these two disciples who are walking on the road. And uh, these two disciples, one of them is given a name. Cleopas in Latin. Clopas in Greek. Very unusual uh, name, especially for a Jew to have. In fact, this is what Eusebius, the church historian writing just 200 years after Jesus uh, says, he says that Cleopas is Jesus' dad's brother. So this is Jesus' uncle. Um, this, is, this fits because if you have a PowerPoint of Luke 19 verse 25, um, or you can just turn there. Do we have it or not? Oh, I don't see anyone at PowerPoint. Oh, okay. So why don't you just turn to Luke, uh, John 19, verse 25. Or you can just listen to me. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother. That would be Mary. Then his mother's sister, Mary. Well, there aren't two Marys in one family, most likely. And this Mary, the mother's sister, is the wife of Clopas, or Cleopas. Um, this is 
sister-in-law to Mary. This is Jesus' aunt. And so these are the two. It's, it's Cleopas and Mary who are, who are on this journey. And verse 13 says that they're on this road called Emmaus. They're walking from Jerusalem, which is seven miles. Now, uh, one of the interpretations of the word Emmaus is, is it's, it's the word for hopeless. And so they're walking away from Jerusalem, which, which means city of peace, shalom, and they're walking towards hopeless, and it's seven miles, and seven is the number of completion. And so you have already this literary uh, hinting that you have two people who are walking away from shalom into complete despair. And then when you read the story, this is exactly where this couple is. They're in complete despair. And as they're walking along the road in their despair, this stranger shows up and says, what are you discussing? And the text says they just stopped. And their faces just went down. This is depression. And then the, the stranger says, well, why, why, why are you so, so despairing? What are you discussing? And they're like, haven't you heard the talk of the town? This, this, this Jesus? What they did to him? And then verse 21 gets us right into the, the, the reason for their despair. Look at verse 21. They said, but we had hoped, we had hoped that he would redeem Israel. The Proverbs says that hope deferred is what makes the heart sick. And some of you are there today. Some of you are on this road to Emmaus. Hopes have been shattered. The way you thought life would go, it, it, all your dreams crushed. Psalm 42, David's just kind of talking to himself and, and, and talking about his own despair, his, his own depression. He, he, he says, self, why are you so despairing? Self, why are you so depressed? And he's saying this, but then he's answering it by then preaching to himself because sometimes we need to preach to ourselves. He says, soul, hope in the Lord. Hope in him. And why hope in God? First of all, because of who God is. God is the creator, the ruler. He, he, he has everything in, 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 his, in his control. And yet the Bible also says more than just being a ruler, a king, he, he's a shepherd. He's a father. He cares for us. And it's not just put your hope in the Lord because of, of, of who he is, but it's also put your hope in the Lord because of what he does. And I can sum up in one word what God does. God redeems. That is what he is about. He is about putting back together everything that's gone wrong and making it right. Now, the two that are walking along this road, their, their despair comes not from hoping in too much. Their despair is actually they hoped in way too little because their hope of redemption did not include the hope of a resurrection. And I'm going to draw this conclusion. Anyone who does not have the hope of a resurrection today, at some point in the game, your life will end in despair. 
Because if this life is all there is, think about it. It's a pretty dirty trick. Everything that we, 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 we attain in life, eventually we lose it all. We lose our health. We lose the people we love. Eventually we're going to lose our own lives. And see, in our agnostic, secular world, where we're taught that we just sort of evolved from some random collision of atoms, and then when we die, we just rot, if our origin is insignificant and meaningless, and our destiny is insignificant and meaningless, then tell me how everything in between can be full of meaning. Why anything can even matter. Why anything can even have a sense of worth. In fact, today, if that's the way it is, we don't even have have the basis to call anything really good or bad. And even things like oppression and racism, they're just mental constructs that we are imposing on a senseless world. Because if our origin and our destiny is meaningless then really everything in between is meaningless too. That's why we have this book in the Bible called Ecclesiastes where it talks about life under the sun, life under the sun, everything. If, 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 if all that exists is just life under the sun, I don't care what you get, what you achieve, it will be, in the end, meaningless, a vanity of vanities. And think about it. We live in that world today where we've achieved almost everything there is under the sun so much to spare. Even Paul said, if there is no resurrection, then be a hedonist. And, and, and hedonism, their whole creed is eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Hedonism, too, is just something that ends in despair. Because it's a descent into yourself. And the deeper you descend into yourself, where you get so stuck in yourself, you're really descending into hell itself. The only way to live believing that life matters, that people matter, that our world matters, is to believe an eternal God. And, and as Ecclesiastes says, he has put eternity in our hearts, which means we long to be eternal. And without the hope of a resurrection, meaningless, meaningless, says the preacher, everything is meaningless. Now, look at verse 21. They say to Jesus, our hope is that um, this Jesus was going to redeem Israel. Okay, like all the Jews of Jesus' day, resurrection just wasn't on their radar screen. For them, what redemption meant is it, it, it meant Deliverance, it meant exodus. It, it, it's the hope that, that God would come and do what he did once in their history to the Egyptians. And listen, to them redemption was more than just the forgiveness of sins, which is, I think, how we see redemption. Redemption to a Jew had, had many dimensions to it. First of all, it's, it's the idea that God frees us from Pharaoh. God changes our circumstances. The second dimension is that he's delivered us. He's not only changed our circumstances, but he's changed our hearts. And not only that, but he's redeemed us. He's literally bought our life back. And it doesn't even stop there. He became a husband to us. 
our protector, our provider, our lover. So here the Jews are again under a pagan ruler, under a pharaoh, under Rome. They're desperate for Messiah, for a conquering king who's going to come and triumph over their enemies and restore Israel to this free state where they can be God's people in God's special place, under God's rule, enjoying God. That's for you, Neil Martin. (laughs) But here's what they miss. It's how God redeemed the first time. It wasn't through a conquering king. It was through a lamb. And that blood that was covered on their doorpost that protected them. And on that day when God unleashed his judgment day on on the land of Egypt, the next morning in every house there was either a dead lamb or a dead firstborn son. And Israel was spared because a lamb and its blood was spilled. And now it's Passover and every Jew celebrating God's redemption, Jesus became their lamb. And they missed it. But they also missed what God was redeeming them from because they didn't go far enough back into their story. Their their problem is far greater than Egyptians and Romans. These are just pawns of a greater problem. And that's where you go back to Genesis 1, 2, and 3 and you, and you read about this snake, this serpent, who, who used sin and poisoned all of God's creation, every inch of it, with his venom. And creation became broken. We know that. We live in a world that's broken. Our country's broken. The world's broken. Our communities are broken. Families are broken. Lives are broken. Hearts are broken. Creation has become broken in every way. You know what? The Bible promised that when the true king comes again, all things, all things will be made new. The wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. And a little child will lead them. The lion will eat straw like an ox. The infant will play near the hole of the cobra. And a young child will put his hand in the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain. For the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And Jesus' death is really the anti-venom. Destroying once and for all the serpent's venom, undoing it. And his resurrection is much more than a resuscitation. All the people that come back to life in the Bible, those are just resuscitation. This is the first resurrection. Jesus is raised to never die again. And with this resurrection, death is swallowed up. The perishable becomes imperishable. The mortal becomes immortal. Because with the resurrection of Jesus, new creation has begun. Yeah. Thank you. It's the hope that God is beginning the process of making all things new. It's the hope of new life. It's the hope of a new body. It's the hope of a renewed earth. It's the hope of of renewed families and cities and countries and neighborhoods. The whole thing. 
Let me ask you a question. Can you imagine a world like this right now? And see, this is where so many Christians also are, are, are like the Jewish people in Jesus' day. I think our problem is that we, we don't hope enough. Our, our, our hope is so limited and small. So many of us just kind of think, well, poor God. You know, he had this great idea of creating this really good world, and it, it all went bad, but somehow he's just going to salvage a few souls from it that he's going to take to heaven with him. I just want to say, are you kidding me? Jesus came to the world to do a lot more than just save a few souls. Jesus came to the world to redeem and restore all things. In fact, ask yourself this question. What came out of the tomb on Resurrection Day? It was more than just Jesus' soul. His body was raised. And then you have to ask yourself, what kind of body are we talking about? And and you read these post-resurrection stories about Jesus. They're fascinating. There's so much in them. Because in one sense, people recognize him, but then in another sense, they don't. Just like today. They don't recognize him. You see that he can walk through walls, but then he walks through the wall and just... Tells them, look, guys, I'm not a ghost. That's verse 39. And then I, I love verses 41 and 43. It says, hey, guys, give me some of your, some of your fish and chips. <laughs> and he eats. He eats. And see, in a world where the dimensions of heaven and earth are still separate, where God's space and our space haven't come together again like they're going to in Revelation 21 and 22, and there's going to be this wonderful marriage of of the two. But until that time, Jesus belongs to both. He's both spiritual and material. And if you want to know what this means, do you have 1 Corinthians 15? Probably not. (laughs) Oh, good. You got that one. Good. Listen to this hope. So you see, just as death came into the world through one man, now the resurrection from the dead has begun, begun through one man. Just as everyone dies, and that's a fact, we all know it, because we all belong to Adam, that's the reason. Everyone who belongs to Christ, will be given new life. Is that your hope today? That everything that we see God doing in in, in raising Jesus, he's going to one day do for us. Do you know that right now, you're just, you're, you're hardly even a shadow of what you're going to become. Paul says in Philippians 3, he says, God will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. I'll tell you, C.S. Lewis in The Great Divorce gives one of the best descriptions or, or, or pictures of what this will be. He describes a man who's ushered into the world to come. 
And this guide is giving this man a tour. And he's seeing all these people enjoying this indescribable world. And at one point, he sees this stunningly beautiful woman who's surrounded by all these girls and boys who are just dancing around her. And this brilliant light is shining upon her. And, and, And as they continue the tour, he can't get this woman out of his mind. He says, I can only partly remember the unbearable beauty of her face. He said she was so unbelievably beautiful. So he whispers to his guide, was was, was that such and such? And he says, no. Was it this person? No. He said, it's someone you've never heard of. Her name on earth was Sarah Smith, and she lived at Golders Green. But the person said, wow, she seemed to be a a person of such great importance, of, of great fame. And the guide only says, but you have not heard that fame here and fame on earth are two very different things. Well, then who are all those young boys and girls that are dancing all around her? Oh, those are her sons and daughters. Well, my sir, she must have had a very large family. No. Every young boy that met her became her son. Every girl that met her became her daughter. Well, wasn't that hard on their parents? No. Her love was of a different kind. Those on whom it fell, they only went back to their natural parents loving them more. And then the guide says, and now look at the radiance of her life. And that is the life that she has in Christ that flows over into them. And he says, already there is joy enough in her little finger to raise all the dead things of the universe to life. For those of us who are in Christ, he's not just going to raise our soul. He's going to raise our body. And if we could see right now what we're going to look like, as C.S. Lewis said, we would be tempted to fall down and worship. It will be that incredible. Where God's image is fully, fully renewed in us. And see, not only is God going to do that with us, but... He's going to do this uh, with all creation. In fact, I, I, I love the beautiful picture in our story. You have Jesus. You have God walking with a couple again. And the first time the Bible describes Jesus, God, walking with a couple is in Eden. And what this is, it's a picture. It's telling us how God is is once again restoring Eden. He's bringing us back in. Because the thing that was most lost in Eden is that Adam and Eve walked with God. They didn't just know about God. They adored him. They experienced him in the cool of the day. And not only is there going to be a return to that, but everything that God created, he's not throwing the world away like a piece of garbage. He loves it. And he's going to redeem and restore it. As Paul says, Christ will be all in all. Christ will be all in all. And this is why the Bible, when it speaks of this day, says the trees of the field will clap their hands. The mountains are going to sing. The rivers and the lakes are going to dance. Do you live with this hope?
Does it cause your heart to burn today like it did these two disciples? Do you know the resurrection, Lord? Not just know about him, not just believe that it happened, but do you you die him? Do you know him? And do you know the power of, of the resurrection in your life right now? I'm telling you, this is why Christians historically have just been set free from this world, set free from having to have all the stuff of this world. We don't have to make it to the top. We can live life at the bottom. We don't have to have it all. We can give all of it away. Do you live life with, with, with this kind of freedom, not just living for yourself, but, but really living for the sake of the world, a world that God loves? I mean, think about this. Even the worst life in, in this short existence, in light of eternity, is nothing more than just a bad afternoon. And see, this hope that Cleopas and Mary came to know on this day it's something that I want. I, I, I want it. I want to know it. I don't want to just know about it. I, I, I want to die it. I want to have this personal, intimate experience of it. Now look, when, when, when did they actually recognize him? This whole time, Jesus never just stops and says, Hey guys, look at me. Would you guys look at me? He doesn't do that. Instead, look at verse 27. It says, Jesus opened the scriptures. And later he's going to do the same thing with his disciples in verses 44 and 45. He's going to open the scriptures. What Luke is telling us is that we cannot encounter the risen Lord without opening his word. Because if you want to find him, if you want to know him, if you want to experience him on your Emmaus road, this is where he is. And I can't understand why so many Christians today want to go around this and they want to see and they want to hear apart from this. And listen, it's not just going to the scriptures, but it's, it's going to the scriptures understanding that this book is a story and the whole story is about Christ. Because yeah, there are two ways to read the Bible. You can read the Bible where it's all about you. So you come to a story like David and Goliath, and, and because you think this book is all about you, you just kind of think that if I just have enough faith and, and try hard enough, that all the giants in my life are just going to come, come crumbling down. And you read the Bible this way, and you read the miracles this way, and you read the healings this way, and, and the walking on water and all this stuff. And I'll tell you, at first it'll be incredibly inspiring but then it will crush you. Because the Bible isn't about you. It's not here to tell you how you can be the hero. It's not here to show you how you can save yourself. It's here to show you the one hero in the whole universe and that he saves you. If you keep reading the Bible where it's all about you, it will crush you because this book is about Jesus. He is the king of all kings. He is the Lord of all lords. He is the prophet of all prophets. He is the priest of all priests. He is the sacrifice of all sacrifices. He's the temple of all temples. He is the hero of all heroes. In fact, every, I'll, I'll, I'll push this further, every good story is about Jesus. What do you think Lion King's about? 
What do you think Les Mis is about? What do you think Frodo's about? And see, when we read the Bible this way, and we start to see that we're not the hero, but Jesus is, and we start to see that this is about what Jesus has done for us instead of what we need to do for him, you're going to say, man, did our hearts not burn within us? And you're going to encounter him, the living Christ. Secondly, put verse 21 with verse 22. In other words, the reason why Christ is the hope, not just of Israel, but of everything, is because of what he did in verse 21. Because redemption and resurrection always flow out of suffering and death. Which is why the Apostle Paul says, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. And he doesn't stop there like so many of us do. He says, and I want to have intimate fellowship with his sufferings. Because Paul knows that the way you have resurrection power in your life is through death and the way God unleashes his redemption is always through suffering. To be united with Christ and united with him in his resurrection, we first have to be united with him in his death. Do you know this? This is why the Bible is always pairing redemption with suffering, why it's always pairing resurrection with death. You can't have one without the other. Unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground, it bears no fruit. But if that grain of wheat dies, it will bear much fruit. Paul says, okay, church, you want me to boast? I'll boast. I'll boast about my weaknesses and sufferings, for Christ's power is made perfect, perfect in weakness. And see, there are Christians today that think, okay, because of the resurrection, we're not going to suffer anymore, when it's really just the opposite. We will be sufferers, fellow sufferers with Christ, because to be united with Christ in his resurrection means we're also going to be united with him in his death. But listen, when we suffer, he's walking with us on our Emmaus road. He's with us. And maybe even more than that, when we suffering, suffer, we need to know that our suffering is never in vain. You see, to our world, suffering is a complete waste. It's a waste that's to be avoided at all costs. But for us, as we carry our cross, as we bear life's burdens and the burdens of other people, as we look to him, rely on him, and praise him in the midst of our suffering, when we suffer like him... We're going to become like him. And just think about Christ's resurrection body for a second. It still bears the scars, the wounds. Because the scars and the wounds are part of his resurrected, glorious new body. And resurrection means God's going to do the same with our scars and wounds. He isn't just going to snap his fingers and 
and, and, and make it all go away. Instead, all of our scars, all of our wounds, our sufferings are going to be taken up in the hope of the resurrection and the greatness of what God is making us into. So think about it right now. Every wound, every weakness, every tear, every cross, every hurt, it's working for you right now. Because through this, you are becoming infinitely greater than if these things never happened. And in the end, it's going to produce what Jesus' suffering and death produced in him. A resurrection. And that's what baptism has come to represent. It's such a profound picture of, of what it means to be united with Christ. Paul says in Romans 6... He says, when we were joined with Christ Jesus in baptism, we joined him in his death. For he died and was buried, and we die and are buried with Christ by baptism. And just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, now also we are raised to live new lives. Since we have been united with Christ in his death, we will be raised to new life as Christ was raised. That's our hope. Maybe today is the first day where you say, I want to be united with Christ. I want to be united with his death. I want to go be crucified with Christ. Knowing that his death is the doorway into resurrection. If you want to be baptized today, put that stake in the ground. Identify in your life with Christ. Make your way to the back. Right now, just take in the rest of the baptisms.